you know, as we, as we are gathered here in the Lord's house, uh, we are not all together, as John said earlier. But the beautiful thing about Christian fellowship is that we are with one another in spirit, aren't we? Just as Paul uh, said to his church when he was far away from them, that he, he said that he was with them in spirit. And so are we together in spirit because of the bond that we have together in Christ. And so I want to encourage you right now to turn off your distractions, whatever they might be, your notifications and, and so on, and get settled in and get your Bibles out and turn to Proverbs 16. And let's, let's meditate together on the Word of God as God nourishes us. And so let's, let's have a word of prayer before we start. Holy and gracious God, I thank you so much for our time together today, and I thank you that, that even though we can't meet together in the same room, uh, that you are here with us uh, wherever we are. And because of the blood that was shed for us, we are bound together in true fellowship. And so, Father, until we meet again, we pray that you would uh, bless our meditation on your word today. Uh, we, we, we pray that uh, you would nourish us, uh, that you would open our eyes to this, this majestic and, and grand doctrine of your providence, and that we would be assured by the fact that, that you hold all things in your hands, and you are so sovereign over all things, and nothing can defeat you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I tell you what, I, I know uh, this is true for me. On January 1st of this year, uh, I was making a lot of plans, weren't you? Uh, we were making plans about uh, what we were going to do this year, uh, where were we going to go on vacation, uh, but also uh, things like how were we going to improve our situation at work. Uh, we were planning our finances. We were, we were planning on how we were going to go about our schoolwork this year because it has an impact on, on what's in the future and a whole lot of other things. We've all had plans that we made earlier this year. And here we find ourselves in the middle of April unable to carry out many of those plans. In fact, some of us have, have lost our jobs because the job just dried up because we're all staying at home. Some of us have had our hours cut back, and uh, so our pay is, is a lot lower than it was, and we're concerned about the future. So uh, we're, we're all kind of stuck in this strange reality for a while, and our, our future seems uncertain. It's really easy for us uh, to really worry about what, uh, what not only has happened to us, but also what's going to happen to us. There are people right now in hospitals who are dying because of this virus. And so we have, uh, on top of all of these other things, a concern about our own safety. And so it's easy in a time like this for, for us to find ourselves thinking that, that God is somehow losing, uh, that somehow the devil has the upper hand, or that evil is winning out over God. But the fact is, as we're going to see today, is that God never loses. God's will is never thwarted. And I think the, the important thing for us to remember about a tragedy like this and the, all the other tragedies in our lives or the, the difficult times, what God is showing us is that His truth is greater than whatever disaster might come our way that his gospel is greater, that our Lord Jesus Christ is greater than all of these things. 
And so those of us who are a little bit older can, can look back on our lives and, and we can see God's hand in it all. Uh, there, most of us have been through some very difficult times and at the time those seemed like things uh, that were insurmountable and that God was somehow absent from our lives. And yet as we look back, we can point not only to the difficult times, but also the good times that we've had and the, the circumstances that he orchestrated to bring us where we are today. And so I think if there's any wisdom that we who are a little bit older uh, can, uh, can convey to you who are younger, you who are looking ahead at most of your lives, is that uh, you, you make your plans as best you can but at the same time, understand that those plans are going to change, sometimes against your will. There's nothing you could have done about it. And yet, God is in control. God is in control. And so uh, today, uh, we get to, to ponder this incredible, majestic doctrine of God's providence. God's providence. And we're going to see today that we don't need to worry about the outcome because our Lord has it in his hands. Now, this word providence is one that we've come up with to describe a concept in the Bible. Uh, it's just like we call the Trinity, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You won't find the, the word Trinity in your Bibles. Well, neither will you find the word providence. But what this describes is what we see in the Bible. And so we try to sum it up in one word. Now, in English, this, this word uh, literally means foresight, but it's a whole lot more than God just looking down the corridor of time and, and anticipating what's going to happen. No, it's a whole lot more than that because, for one, God is outside of time. He sees all of time all at once. And so our, our God is not limited by time like we are. We're the ones who are looking down the corridor of time and are feeling uncertain about the way things are going to turn out. But God isn't. He's not uncertain at all. And so we use this term providence uh, to, to generally describe uh, how God preserves and governs all things. And the, and the way that he governs and, and preserves all things is not only by his sovereign will, which is like the umbrella over all of us, but also he orchestrates things by means of what theologians call secondary causes. In other words, you and me and things like a coronavirus, or as we're going to see today, a famine. Uh, so uh, what the theologians call this, this interworking between us and God, uh, with, under God's control, his sovereign will, is called concurrence. Uh, God and, uh, is, is working with us and through us in our lives. Why? To bring about his end, to bring about his will. And this is the thing that ought to give us a great deal of hope. So God's providence extends to the natural world and it extends to the affairs of men, even our evil deeds and our righteous ones. And so God is in sovereign control of all things. So my goal today, though, as we talk about providence isn't isn't to thoroughly define providence because we'd be here till well next Sunday. <laughs> it's a it's a deep subject. Uh, lots and lots of trees have died trying to explain God's providence, but but I think what God wants us to just see today is 
He just wants us to, to literally open our eyes. He wants us to open our eyes to the truth of God's sovereign will and, and to the fact that that ought to give us a great deal of hope and comfort even as we go through this time. And so the point of all of this, the point of this doctrine of providence is that God always accomplishes his will. God has never not accomplished his will, not in, in all of history. Nothing has happened that has surprised God or taken him off guard. Uh, Nothing has happened that has overpowered God. God is over all things, and he orchestrates everything for our good and for his glory. And so as we walk through uh, today, we're going to look at some some passages in Scripture, and then we're going to take a look at the story of Joseph. And what we're going to see is these three things in random order. Uh, First thing that that, that I've got on my list is that we're going to understand that God never violates our free will uh, to choose and to act. We simply are who we are, and we act with freedom in that, under God's sovereign umbrella. And then the second thing is that God uses both evil and good to bring about his good. This doesn't mean that God is evil or that God uh, forces someone to sin. But again, using our nature and the choices that we make, God orchestrates things for his glory, uh, for the the end that he wants. And so the third thing is, again, that providence ought to give us a great deal of comfort because we believe in a sovereign God who not only does mighty things, but there's no way in the world he's ever going to lose. And so we're going to see all of these things, these three things intertwined as we go along today. And so as we approach our, our verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 9, a very familiar passage to most of us, I, I want to read uh, as well and walk through the, the eight verses that precede uh, verse 9, because I think that's going to shed a lot of light on how we understand the providence of God. Well, in the first verse of chapter 16, it says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. This is one of those verses that's very difficult to to, uh, translate from the original Hebrew. It kind of seems a little bit twisted up to us. But the general gist of this verse is that we cannot speak or think or plan anything that is truly worthy in and of ourselves. Uh, Goodness does not come from us. It comes from God. And so uh, the point is, is that we depend on God's worthiness. We depend on his worthiness as he works and wills in our lives. And then in verse 2, we see that all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. You know, we do something good and we say, yeah, look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good here. I look what I've done. This is a good thing and I should get some credit for this, don't you think? And we see this in the, in the world going on around us. In fact, we're participating in, in some good deeds. And, and that's right and good, even by unbelievers, to do good deeds. But the thing that we need to understand is that as we do them, God, as verse 2 says, weighs the spirit. You see, God is a God who watches us. God is a, a God who knows us intimately, no matter who we are. And so... Uh, as we go about our, our daily business and as we do good works, God knows what our heart is in doing. So God is the one who weighs our spirits. He didn't create us and then just leave us alone to, to wallow 
Uh, God understands who we are, and he wants to interact with us and intervene in our lives when necessary uh, to cause us to follow his ways. And then uh, verse 3 says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Well, this is just logical, isn't it? Uh, if, we, if we conduct our lives in a, in a way that, that pleases God, of course, God's going to bless those plans, isn't he? If we love the Lord and, and strive to do his will, God's going to bless us in that. It's only logical. I tell you, the, the number of times I've heard, uh, I've had people come to me, uh, especially from outside this church, uh, and ask, asking me to, uh, for instance, give them count, couples counseling when they're living together. Well, the first thing I got to do is address the obvious sin that's going on. Uh, and generally, people don't like that too much. But there's no way in the world I can counsel them as a married couple when they're not married. And that's what they've come to me for. So when we walk with the Lord, God is going to bless our, our plans. God is not going to bless sin. He never does. He never does. But God uses our evil deeds to bring about his will. And that's the distinction we need to keep in mind. Then in verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose. Yeah, we get that. Good. All right. But then we read the rest of the verse and we're pretty puzzled. Because God made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And, and this is where we get into to, to a realm that, that is beyond our ability to truly comprehend. Paul said, how can the potter, uh, how can the pot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? This is a great mystery. And, and then Paul goes on to say that he makes some vessels for dishonorable use and some for honorable use. Again, this is something that we don't fully grasp. And I don't know that... that God has given us the ability to fully grasp that idea. But what he does say to us is trust me because I am holy. Trust that my decisions are always right and just and fair. And so then in verse 5, uh, we see that everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. This is describing people, and I think we've all found ourselves in this situation once or twice, where, where, we, uh, uh, where we want God to bow to us, where we want him to justify his actions. Okay, God, if you say that you, you make the wicked for the day of trouble, then how come you do that? Doesn't that make you evil? That's the kind of accusation that we bring against God sometimes. And sometimes we, we just want God to answer to us. We want, we want to justify him rather than the other way around. And the Lord says that those who do this will not go unpunished. And the only question is whether you're the one who's going to take that punishment or whether your burden of sin is going to be laid upon Christ through faith in him. And then verse 6 says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Here's God's providence. All the way from the very beginning in the garden, God promised the way of salvation. He, he established his plan for us. This is God's providence. And this plan is that through his steadfast love and faithfulness to us, as we know today as demonstrated in Jesus Christ, that we have a way uh, to approach our God and to be in fellowship with him, to be restored 
to a relationship with him, a right relationship. And so what just flows from that, from faith in God and, 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 a, and a genuine love for Christ and a desire to follow him is that, is that we fear the Lord, as verse 6 says. And as we fear the Lord, we turn away from evil. Now this is the, similar to, the, to that conviction we got when we were first saved and we realized our desperate need for a Savior. We realized uh, how filthy we were, how much we needed Him. And so because we need Him and realize that He is the one who stands in judgment over us, we have an appropriate reverential fear and awe of God. Then verse 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now we've got to be careful reading this because this sounds like a blanket statement that every time you try to make peace with an enemy, yeah, that's what's going to happen, is that you'll make peace with him. Well, I can say from experience, I've tried many times to make peace with enemies, and only the, the so-called enemies who, uh, who have been willing to, to engage in that effort of peace have been ones who've known the Lord and who seek peace as well. And so uh, what God is saying here is that when we love him, we are going to seek peace with our enemies. We're going to do as Paul says, for instance, we're going to love our enemies. Jesus said that too. Uh, and and we're, going to, we're going to pray for them and we're going to do good to them instead of evil for evil. We're going to treat them differently we're going to treat them as our lord would treat them and then verse 8 says better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice this is a, a wonderful value statement about the worth of knowing god uh, and and so what what the what what this uh, proverb is saying is that that it's a whole lot better to know god and be a pauper than it is to not know god and sin to get great riches in this world. Our wealth is not worth anything compared to the worth of knowing Christ. Paul said that. This reminds me as well of Psalm 84:10. For a day is better in your courts, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Amen. Amen. But you see, in all of these eight verses, we see the providence of God, and we see how God works in our lives. And then it just is kind of summed up in verse 9, this beautiful, simple verse that says this, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, to understand this, as we look at the rest of Scripture, we see that this is the testimony of Scripture over and over and over and over again. All through Scripture, we see God's providence, God's working in His sovereign will in our lives to bring about His glory and our good. And so as we, as we look through the Scriptures, we see two basic elements of God's providence. The first is preservation, the fact that God sustains all things by his power. We see this in Nehemiah 9.6. 
You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Isn't it right and good that the host of heaven would worship the God who has created all things, this, this amazing creation that was, that was brought about out of absolutely nothing, simply by the voice of God saying, let it be so, let it be so. And isn't it appropriate that, that the host of heaven and that we would worship the one who upholds and preserves all of creation for us? The idea here is, is that, that if God stopped in one millisecond upholding the universe, it would just all be destroyed. It would go away. And so God, in his mercy and grace for every single one of us on this planet, upholds the universe by his power. He preserves all of us by providing the things that we need. And then in Hebrews 1.3, speaking of our Lord, it says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, here we see that, that our Lord Jesus Christ is, is God because he is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And he, along with the Father, upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then we can't forget Colossians 1.17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And speaking of our Lord Christ. And so we see that, that God is the one who sustains his creation. And so the second element of God's providence is his government of creation. He governs all of, the, all of nature and the affairs of men. Not a single thing happens without God's permission. He cares for the sparrow, and he cares for us. Uh, he governs us, he rules us, and he rules us toward his glorious end. And that is good for us as well. And so God governs according to this goal that he has in mind. You see, in the end, God himself is going to be glorified when Jesus comes back. And when everything is restored to its proper place and there's a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. This is the end that our God is working toward. And so he, he governs his creation to work toward that end. Now Romans 11.36 says, For from him, in other words, from God comes all of creation, and through him God sustains all things and, and uh, rules all things. And to him are all things. In other words, as the end of the verse says, to him be glory forever. Amen. And so uh, God's governing of his creation is always about his glory and for our good as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, God's governance is based on something. God isn't governing in a random way depending on the mood he's in and all this sort of thing. He orchestrates all things based on his decrees, the things that he's told us he's going to do. He bases his decrees on his holiness, of course, and all of his will is holy and pure and right. 
but uh, God, in His grace and mercy, has given us decrees about what He's going to do. He's given us decrees about who He is and how we're to live in the Ten Commandments and in His law and in His command for us to love Christ and obey Him. And so really the way that we can think about providence, this idea of providence, is that it's the application of God's decrees to the universe. When God decrees something, it's going to happen. When God uh, uh, decreed to Abraham uh, that, his, that, that his offspring would be like the stars of heaven, that's exactly what happened, isn't it? And when God said that he would send a Savior, that's exactly what has happened, isn't it? And when God says that the way of the wicked will perish, that's exactly what's going to happen. And when God says that the way of the righteous, in other words, those who believe by faith in Christ, are going to be rewarded in paradise, that their sins are going to be counted, uh, accounted to Christ and not ourselves, that is God fulfilling his promise. He's going to do this. He's going to do this. So providence is the application of God's decrees to the universe. And so as I've thought about this, I've come up with the Scott Farrell paraphrase of of Proverbs 16.9, and it goes something like this. From the core of our own values, this, this, this is what the heart means, this is the core of who we are. Whether our values are sinful or holy, We devise our own plans for the way forward. Whether we're a believer or a non-believer, we're making plans for the way forward. Some of us, uh, those especially who are not of Christ, uh, plan their way uh, with sinful desires and sinful goals. But those of us who strive after Christ are striving after his holiness. And so the way that we make our plans is a little different. But the Lord sovereignly determines the course of our lives to bring about his ultimate good and glorious end. And the glory of God always means that it's good for us who believe in Jesus Christ. Even the difficult times. Even when our plans don't go the way we want them to. And there's no better example of this uh, in the story of Joseph. There are myriads of stories in the Bible we could turn to uh, to God's providence. But I think uh, the story of Joseph uh, just has an eloquence about it uh, that we ought to consider. You find this story in Genesis 37 through 50. And I invite you to read that later on today uh, because it's just an amazing story. And and what I like about this story is that that God's providence just, it's, the, the story is just soaking wet with God's providence. It's everywhere in this story. And it begins with God's providence in that he, he causes a really proud father named Jacob to give his son a coat of many colors. And watch what happens with this. It's incredible. So jo- Jacob gives his son Joseph, he's 17 years old, he gives him this coat of many colors, and this uh, starts to, of course, raise some resentment among his many brothers. And, and they especially get irritated when Joseph has, has some dreams about his brothers someday bowing down to him. And, you know, this is the youngest brother. And somehow, you know, uh, the older brothers are bowing down to him. They really took offense to this. 
And so they got angry and resentful. They let, let this grow into bitterness. And so what did they do in their, their sinful attitudes? Well, they threw him into a pit. And they were going to kill him. But then, was it coincidence or providence? Uh, they, a group of Ishmaelites come along and offer to buy Joseph from them. And of course, they go on and sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. But you see, God used this, this act, this free act of their sin to, uh, they, they were anger and resentful. Uh, he, he used all of this to bring about his good that we all know, we see in the end of the story and, and that runs throughout all of scripture. Uh, but the, here's an important point here we need to make. The brothers got mad at, at Joseph and they threw him into a pit. Does that make, and God used that, does that make their their sinful act somehow good? No, not at all. It was purely sinful. It was awful. And in fact, they admit it later on. Uh, they, they say that their, their act was, was an evil deed. And certainly God would see it that way. But God still orchestrated a lot of beautiful things from that sinful deed. It doesn't make God evil. It doesn't mean that God made them sin. They sinned out of their own free choice. Instead of turning to God and, and, and asking his forgiveness and, and trying to relate to their brother better, they chose to sin. And so very clearly, this is a sin. We should never think that evil, an evil act, is somehow good. It never is. It never is. And so, meanwhile, Joseph is in Egypt as a slave, and he, he works hard, and he becomes a trusted servant of, of an Egyptian fis, official. Uh, he works in this, this man's household. This man is named Potiphar. Uh, and, and so he's honest and he's forthright. He's got a really good reputation because he works hard. He's diligent. Uh, he rolls up his sleeves and, and gets things done. And, and he never lies. And he never steals anything from Potiphar's house and, and all those kinds of things. So he's, he's really trusted in Potiphar's household. But then, in the meantime, Potiphar's wife has a thing for Joseph, and she tries to seduce him. And one day, uh, when they are, are together alone in the house, uh, she really becomes aggressive. But Joseph uh, knows that this is wrong, and so he flees. He, he runs like crazy, and this, by the way, brothers and sisters, is a, is a, uh, is a lesson for all of us that we should flee sin. We should just turn tail and run. Uh, when there is temptation. But at any rate, uh, he leaves a garment behind because Potiphar's wife grabbed it off of him. And so she uses that to falsely accuse Joseph of, of rape, and Joseph ends up in jail. And he's in jail until he's 30 years old. We don't know how, how long exactly he was in jail, but it was a long time. It was years. And he's sitting in jail. But do you ever hear Joseph complain? Is he, is he thinking that, that the evil one has somehow gotten victory in this situation? No. He trusts God. It's evident as you read the story. So when Joseph is 30 years old, the Bible says, uh, he finds favor all of a sudden with the Pharaoh because uh, Joseph is known for his ability through God's power to interpret dreams. And, and he finds so much favor that the Pharaoh... Uh, providentially uh, appoints Joseph to be essentially the prime minister of Egypt, the second in charge. 
Now, the Pharaoh's dreams were a warning about what was to come. First, there would be a period of great prosperity. There'd be plenty of food. But after that, there would be seven years of drought and famine. And so a total of 14 years, seven of them prosperous and seven of them a severe famine would come to the land, both in Egypt and in the entire region, including the land of Canaan. And so because God has providentially raised up Joseph, uh, now Joseph is in the position of, of overseeing the storing up of provisions for all of the people in anticipation of the famine. They save one-fifth of everything. And sure enough, after seven years, here comes the famine. But Joseph is able to feed the people. Do you see God's providence here? He didn't, he didn't uh, uh, cause the famine not to happen, did he? God chose to use a famine for his purposes. And this is what we see as we go along. And so because of this famine, Joseph's family back home is start, starting to starve. And they hear that there's food in Egypt. And so they go to Egypt uh, to buy some food. Now, they have no idea that Joseph is there. And they have no idea, when the brothers do, have, they have no idea when they bow down to Joseph, their brother, just as Joseph's dream had revealed 27 years before. 27 years before. And we know what happens next in the story. J J Joseph is not only reunited with his family, but, they, but the family comes to live in prosperity in Egypt. And they also bring along the remnant of God's people. And so God's people are safe because of all of these providential events, none of which were particularly pleasant for Joseph, were they? But God used Joseph even in difficult circumstances. And not only that, God put Joseph in those difficult circumstances for a reason, for a good and godly and righteous reason. So God used the sinful acts of Joseph's brothers, their, their true evil. And, and he also used the righteous behavior of Joseph in that his repu uh, reputation was so good. And he restored his reputation and put him in a position where he was able to help so many people. And all of this was to bring about God's purposes. The late R.C. Sproul, who is one of the, the great teachers and, and biblical scholars of our time, he says this about providence. He said, God stands above our choices and can work through human freedom to bring about his own providential goals. Let me read that again. God stands above our choices and can work through human freedom to bring about his own providential goals. And what is God's goal? We've said it before, we'll say it again. God's goal is always to bring glory to himself for our good. Because what is good for God is good for us if we are followers of Christ. So God ultimately saved many lives through this process, through his providential care of his people, even in some unpleasant ways. And so Joseph could say in the passage that Pastor John read a little bit ago in Genesis 50, as his brothers again bow in fear of Joseph, because they're figuring Joseph has been harboring all kinds of resentment over all these years, and, and when he dies, he's cutting them out of their will and and going to make life miserable for them. 
But Joseph says, no, 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 wait. And he said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? In other words, I'm not your judge. God is. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And he goes on to say that he'll provide for them. He's not cutting them out of the will. And thus, it says at the end of the verse, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The way that Joseph comforted them was by bringing up the providence of God, of recognizing God's hand in his own life, even through terrible events. Joseph was able to see that God's goodness prevailed that there was no disaster or calamity that could befall him that would defeat God. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful lesson for us today as we go through what we're going through? And, and we are reassured of this as we remember the full counsel of Scripture. You see, God's providence isn't confined to just this story of Joseph. And God's providence isn't confined to just one or two events in your life. No, God's providence is, is the thread that runs through all of Scripture. Back in the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, speaking of God's providence, God had provided that for them paradise to live in. But then they sinned. God allowed that evil to happen. He permitted it. But then God also promises a way of salvation, a way to be rescued, and he says that the serpent's head will someday be crushed. That already is a declaration of God's decree, a decree that will occur, that must happen because God said it must happen. Just as in the same way when God created all of creation, he spoke it into being. And here he is speaking our redemption into being. And it will happen. And so the rest of all of history is about how God is fulfilling his promise. And so he raises up uh, people like Abraham who are, who are so uh, faithful to God. This, this man was so faithful to God that he was even willing to sacrifice his own son. He knew that God would provide a lamb for the sacrifice that God had told him, had told him to make that day. God didn't allow him to sacrifice his son. It was a test of Abraham's faith, but it was also a beautiful picture of what God someday would do for us in the sacrifice of his own son. And so Joseph comes along and, and God orchestrates all of these amazing events in his life to preserve not only the life of his family, but also of God's people. God's people become slaves in Egypt, but then God delivers them uh, through a man named Moses. And again, we have a picture of the salvation of Christ, a picture of how our Lord is leading us to the promised land in the new heaven and the new earth. Moses, uh, God through Moses uh, gives them the law gracefully and, and lovingly gives them the law so that they, they know uh, how to live for God and they know what God's holiness is. Again, God's providence, God's intervention 
in this creation and in our lives. And yet even as they disobey God over and over again throughout their history, God continues to sustain them. He keeps His promise. And then we see this line of kings. First we see King David. He was an imperfect man. And so God used even his sin, but also his righteous deeds to bring about his will and establishes the throne of Christ, the the lineage uh, that we would know our Lord by. And so there are good kings and bad kings. There were fewer good kings than bad ones. The good ones worshiped the Lord appropriately. But the bad ones did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and worshiped idols. And ultimately, God's people are in captivity in, in Babylon. And then after hundreds of years, they're set free again. But now they have no leader. There is no king. There are no prophets. And God is silent for 400 and some years. But then, but then, God's promise of salvation is fulfilled when this boy named Jesus is born. God himself come in the flesh, who lived a perfect life and became the only worthy sacrifice to wash away all of our sins. Hebrews 1, the first two verses, we read verse 3 a little bit ago, but says this about our Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let's pause there. God provided for his people by speaking his truth to them, by giving them his word, by, by making them realize how much they needed God. And through the sacrifices that they made, the, <clears throat> the, the sacrifices on God's altar, and the, the sacrificing the, the cows and the sheep and, and, and the lambs and so forth. He gave them a picture of the costliness of sin. And so God very lovingly spoke through the prophets so that we could know the mind of God and so that we could be convicted to come to Him. But in these last days, verse 2, He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so we know that our Messiah is truly God, as he is fully man, as Jimmy was talking about earlier. Fully God and fully man. And our God is so great, our Lord Jesus Christ is so great, that in verse 3, which we read a little bit ago, We know that he now upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is who we worship. This is who we bow down to and who we depend on because someday he's going to come again in glory to restore us to paradise, to bring us home. But in the meantime, this is a broken world, broken by sin. And so we depend on our great God to work and act according to his will in our lives. We depend on God's providence. And so God never violates our free will to choose and act. We act according to who we are, whether we're a sinner or a sinner made saint by the blood of Christ. 
God uses both evil and good to bring about his good. That does not mean that God is evil. It just simply means he uses this broken world to accomplish his good work, his majestic and glorious work of salvation. And finally, providence gives us comfort, doesn't it? Because as we look up to our God in heaven in the midst of this crisis, we know that God is using this for his glory. We know that even, even as we uh, lament the fact that maybe we've lost our jobs and there's an uncertain future ahead of us, we know that God certainly is in charge. We know that our future is certain in our Lord's hands. We know that Jesus will never let anyone snatch us out of his hand. We know for certain that God is in control and will never be defeated. In fact, he is so powerful, he can even use evil to accomplish his good. And so what this does is causes us to, to trust God all the more, and it sheds light on God's word as we read a familiar passage here, Romans 8.28, but close your eyes and listen to this. And we know that for those who love God, and we know that for those who love God, get that, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God always accomplishes his will, brothers and sisters. There is, there is no doubt about it. And that is true for Joseph, and it's true for every single one of us, even in the finest details of our lives. Nothing surprises or escapes God. Uh, he takes care of his own, just as he did his own people uh, in the story of Joseph. And brothers and sisters, <clears throat> the great truth of all of this is that what is good for God is good for us. And even all that he expects of us and requires of us is good for us as well. And so as we live through this time of uncertainty and as we anticipate the coming of our Lord, I think in that day, we're going to look back and see God's great and majestic providence in it all. And so let's live now, right now, in the midst of an uncertainty. Let's live with that comfort. And let's proclaim God's peace to the world. Let's proclaim his gospel to the world. Because it is the only sure thing in the entire universe. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you that you have created us and not left us alone to wallow in our own inabilities. We thank you, Lord, that you intervene in our lives and cause our lives to bring you glory that is the chief end of man, as the Westminster Catechism says, that we would bring glory to you, and that is what we want. We want our lives to bring glory to you. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, encourage us. We pray that you would build us up. We pray that you would uh, soften the fears that we have of the uncertainty that's around us and give us confidence completely in you because you are the God who takes care of us. In Jesus' name, amen.